Well, good morning to all of you again as well. And this morning you should not open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because we're going to do something a little bit different. Over the past several months, we've been making our way through the book of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings. Every now and then, I like to take a little short break from our regular study to talk about something different. And today is one of those breaks. We'll return next Sunday, getting into 1 Peter chapter 4. And then you're probably wondering, of course, what are we going to talk about today? And the answer is nations. Specifically, God's sovereignty over the nations. I want to show you the comprehensive, overarching, supreme sovereignty, authority, and control of God over every nation on the planet, past and present, including our own. This topic has been on my heart recently, both as something I take great personal comfort in, as well as something I also see seemingly other people forgetting. If you watch the news, if you read the online articles, if you listen to people talking, it strikes you how worried people are over the future. This happens every four years after the election by both sides whenever their guy loses. People are gripped by fear over the future. Some grow despondent and depressed. Others start stockpiling food. Either way, though, I've observed a general fear in people, and it always spikes every year after the election. It's really nothing new. It's nothing special. But what troubles me is when I see people who are Christians responding in the same way. Some Christians get caught up in this fear. They get swept away by it. They read all those stories. They listen to the news, and they conclude that our country is doomed. They're filled with worry over our financial and moral future. Things may not dissolve tomorrow, but they say, you know, in 10, 20 years, who knows how bad it will be. It is as if some Christians have forgotten that God is sovereign. It's as if they don't realize God is powerful enough to work out his plans even when wicked men are in power all over the world. Reminds me of the story of Chicken Little, which I'm sure you remember from a kid. Remember that story? It's actually a fable. It makes light of people's fear and paranoia over the future. The story tells of a little chick who believes the sky is falling when an acorn lands on his head. And fearing this calamity, he he feels he has to go tell the king about it. So he goes on a journey to to the king. On the way, he runs into some other birds, a duck, a goose, a hen, a turkey. He convinces them that the sky is indeed falling. They believe him. They join him on his journey. Then they run into a fox who is not so convinced. And the fox understands how gullible they are, so he invites them into his den. And then in a very non-kid-friendly way, according to the original story, he eats them. And such is what happens when you get swept up in the fear of the day. And the same is happening today. But far be it from Christians to get swept away by the same currents of fear that that run in the world. Of all people, we who believe in God should be trusting him, the immovable rock. At the very least, I don't want to see our people here at our church falling prey to the same wrong reaction. And this is why I want to talk to you this morning about God's Sovereignty. Understand the message, though. The message is not not to worry because the sky is not actually falling. That's not the message here. In reality, the sky very well may be falling. And the future of America, or the future of America and the world in general, to me, it does look pretty bleak. 
I look at what's happening in Europe and Canada where Christians are literally starting to be jailed over things like calling homosexuality a sin, and I, I imagine it's only a matter of time before that happens here as well. Things may be getting worse in this country, a lot worse. Who knows? They may never get better. The message is not to stop worrying because the sky's not falling. The message is to stop worrying because God controls the sky. Whatever we see happening in the world today in our own country, we need to realize it's all going according to God's sovereign plan. With each passing election, you know what God says? He says, oh, what do you know? Just like I planned it. He's not surprised. He's not stunned like many people are. God is in control of everything we see happening around us, even the bad things, even the times when it seems like the sky is falling down. This is a lesson that all Christians just have to learn. It's not a a popular lesson. You don't hear it in many churches. It's not milk teaching. It's a, a meat type of teaching in Scripture. But it's something you need to learn and be convinced of to reach that spiritual maturity. The world, of course, has no hope in God, so their only recourse is to worry. If you watch all the cable news shows, that's what you'll see. A bunch of people sitting around talking, worrying about the future, worrying about what bad thing might happen next. It should not be this way, though, for Christians. Followers of Jesus should rest in God's sovereignty. God's still on the throne. There's nothing to fear, even when things seem like they're bad. God is in control of the sky, so you need to rest assured in him, even when his plan may be to let the sky fall. This morning, I want to make sure you are convicted of this. I know for many of you, maybe most of you, you believe it. You believe that God is sovereign over the nations. That's good. But it's, it's one thing to know something, to believe it. It's another thing to be convicted of it. Do you understand the difference? When you're convicted of something, you are so utterly convinced, you believe it, to be true so much that you will act on it and react on it when the time comes. And that's what I want to see. Christians need to be so convinced of God's total sovereignty that that they are the ones rightly responding when difficult times come each and every day. And to accomplish this goal of seeing you completely convicted that God controls the world, I want to present you, really overwhelm you with the reality of God's sovereignty over the affairs of nations from Scripture. And I choose nations on purpose. God is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over individuals, over salvation. But nations is fitting for our topic this morning and what's going on in the world today. And the truth, this truth is found in every page of the Bible, if you just take the time to look. And if you do so, you cannot escape the conclusion that, that God reigns. And this has a comforting effect, which we'll look at at the end. So our, our goal today, it's simple but, but challenging at the same time, to survey the scriptures, finding clear proof that God is supreme over everything, over the nations, that he sovereignly rules over all, and that we only need to trust him and his plan each and every day. Now before we dive in, I realize, I don't want to take this for granted, some of you may be younger in the faith, and you might be wondering, what exactly does that word mean that he's throwing around? Sovereignty. I don't want to take it for granted that everyone knows it. So how about we start with a brief definition. There's a few basic elements in understanding God's sovereignty. The first is authority. God, he's the creator of everything. That gives him authority over everything. He's the supreme authority. No one can tell him right or wrong, this or that. He defines 
everything. He's the authority on everything, being the creator. Second is power. God is also infinitely powerful so that he can exercise his authority to the fullest extent. No one can ward off his hand. No one can stop him. And third is freedom. God is free to act as he pleases. He does whatever he wants. And because he has full authority and power, he does so. He does truly what he pleases. This is what the Bible says. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the depths. And putting this all together, God's sovereignty is his supreme power and authority over all creation, such that he is completely in control of all events and he accomplishes whatever he pleases. Now, in a way, that sounds scary. I wouldn't want some person having that much power and authority and control, but we're not talking about a person. And in reality, God's sovereignty like this, it's actually a comforting truth, not a terrifying one to those who love him. And because of who God is, yes, God is perfectly sovereign, but he's not only sovereign. He is also perfectly loving and just and patient, wise, caring, righteous, all around good. God is good, and so we can be assured that he will never abuse his power. He will always act for that which is right. He will always act for his glory. And that's a good thing. So with that brief pocket definition in hand, let's get into this topic now of God's sovereignty, specifically over the nations. I really want you just to see how overwhelmingly Scripture testifies to this fact such that you cannot escape it. If you believe the Bible, you you just have to affirm God's rule. And hopefully you will live rightly in light of it. Come back at the end and talk about that. To guide us in in our time, I'm going to show you six examples of God's sovereignty over the nations in the Bible. Six examples of God's sovereignty over the nations in the Bible. This list is by no means exhaustive, but these examples are some of the most powerful in Scripture. I want to skip over these like skipping stones on a lake. The first example is Babel. Babel from Genesis chapter 11. So turn there. We're going to flip over a lot of scripture this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. First book of the Bible. I'm sure you all can make your way there. Genesis chapter 11. The story of the Tower of of Babel. I want to take you back first to that time when God created the nations. If it wasn't for God, there would not even be nations in the first place. We come to Genesis 11. It's been several generations after the flood. The earth has started to repopulate. But all men still speak the same language. Mankind is not divided into nations yet. They are all still one. And some of these men get an idea. We come to Genesis 11. And just read verse 4 with me. These people, they said, come. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, why do, why do they want to do this? Why do they want to build this city and this tower? The answer is right there in verse 4. So that they can reach into the heavens 
and build a name for themselves. That's what they want to do. What's the problem with that? The problem is that they should have occupied themselves with making God's name known. With honoring God's name. Instead, they wanted the fame and the glory for themselves. What we see here actually is man's continued rebellion against God even after the flood. God told them to, to scatter over the face of the earth, to fill it. Here they wanted to gather together and seek their own glory, their own fame. So God intervenes. But he's got to do more than just destroy the tower. If he destroys the tower, they'll just build another one. He has to stop their unified rebellion and self-sufficiency. And therefore, verses 7 and 8, God confuses their language and scatters them over the earth. This is it. This is He's planting the seeds for the nations right here. And when you think about this, this is actually an act of grace by God to prevent man from steeping further into sin and unified rebellion. God is preventing man from incurring greater wrath by sinning even more together as one. I mean, just think about it. What if you had six children and they're all boys? I know someone like that, by the way. And you know, when those six boys get together, maybe playing in the garage, it's trouble. That just speaks trouble right there. They egg one another on. They're daring one another to do worse and worse things. All things, of course, you've told them not to do. So to keep them from harming themselves and from disobeying you, what do you do? You split them up. You send them to different rooms, different parts of the house. You just try and get them separated. And in a sense, that's what God was doing with mankind at Babel. Here's the point. What was the result? Eventually, it was nations. Who was responsible for this? God. Did God know what he was doing? You bet. Was this a part of his plan? Yes. In fact, what we see here is God and his sovereignty setting the stage, planting the seeds for these nations. Because in his plan, he would make a promise to a certain man a promise to bless all the nations through this man to save them from their sin and rebellion. God's plan was for all the nations. It always has been for all the nations, but he chose to funnel that plan through one person and then branch it back out. That person was, of course, Abraham. And this brings us to our second example now of God's sovereignty over the nations. Our first example, we saw God creating the nations at Babel. But I want to move on. I want to show you God's planning for the nations. He's setting their path like channels of water. So our second example is Abraham. First is Babel. Second is Abraham. This is really hard. Just turn the page. Genesis chapter 12. Just one chapter over and we see what happens. We learn about this man named Abraham who was then called Abram. And originally this guy was a Gentile. But presumably he knew the one true God and he worshipped the one true God. Either way, God in his plan purposed to use Abraham for what? Well, we get a glimpse, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. Most often we turn to this passage and make some sort of comment about the greatness of Abraham's faith, but let's forget Abraham for a second and focus on the God who is making this promise. Just take a step back and and look at the the wide-sweeping magnitude of this passage. What is God promising here? He's promising to take a single man hundreds of miles away from his home to plant him in this new land and to make him into a nation. He didn't even have a son at this point, and he was past childbearing years. Surely Abraham was thinking to himself, that that's quite a promise. I don't see how that's going to happen. Now, who can promise such a thing? Who can make such claims? And the point is, only God can, because God declares the end from the beginning. That's the point here. Is he was declaring to Abraham the end from the beginning. What's the biggest promise you can get away with? Now, honey, I, I promise I'll bring home dinner tonight. Or, honey, I, I promise I'll get this project done. Or, honey, I promise I'll be there on time. That's about the best we can do. And even then, we still fall short and, and fail. But don't, don't take this for granted here, what we're seeing in Genesis 12. God is declaring to Abraham literally what will happen over the course of centuries. God doesn't just know this. He has planned for Abraham to father a nation and to and for that nation to bring blessing to the world. Now you might be thinking, well, this is pretty general stuff. I mean, it's not like he's really specifically saying anything here or promising something that's actually going to happen. But if you keep reading, he does. And just turn over Genesis 15. Just flip the page one more time, Genesis 15. And here we see God making even more promises to Abraham including the promise to have a son, even though he was way too old, the promise to have innumerable descendants who will possess the land of Canaan forever. But I want you to turn your attention to verses 13 through 16. God is ratifying this covenant promise with Abraham. Look at verse 13. God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Stop there for a second. Uh, This this right here is amazing. I like how it begins. He says, no, for certain. God's not saying this might happen, that this could happen. He's saying that this will happen for certain. He's peeking back the curtain. He's taking us backstage. He's giving us the tour. He's telling us his plan, which otherwise we would not have known. Long before it would happen, God just finished promising to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the heaven. But here he adds, oh, you know, by the way, first, they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is talking about Israel's slavery, of course, in Egypt. And this is precisely what happened. 400 years later, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. America, think about it, we haven't even been a country for 400 years. But God's plan was to, for them, his people, to be enslaved that long. Only a truly comprehensively sovereign God can declare the end from the beginning like this. That's something you need to realize. Another point to realize here is that God is sovereign even over the bad things. Look, slavery and oppression are not good. They're not good. But God still ordained them for his very own people. 
They might ask, you know, why would God do this? How could God do this? Hold that question because we're going to see it answered very shortly. But the point I'm making here is simply this. You can't escape this sovereignty. He's just declaring what will happen with this nation and many others. The good, the bad, all things follow the course he's laid for them. This does not excuse you for doing bad things, however, just like the Egyptians who would oppress the Israelites would not be excused excused for their actions. God would hold them accountable, and that's what he says in verse 14. Look there, verse 14. He says, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. See, God, he set everyone's boundaries. And he uses the nations as he sees fit for his plan. His plan for Israel. His plan for Egypt. And for all the nations. In fact, in verse 16, we just get a little peek into God's plan for other nations, which we don't normally hear about. Verse 16. He said, Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, the Israelites, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What's that all about? The sin of the Amorites not complete. Well, the Amorites, they were a nation. They were a wicked, pagan nation back then. And they were truly evil people. And they lived in the land of Canaan, which God was going to eventually give to Israel. And they're so extremely wicked, God could have and perhaps should have just judged them right away and just executed them for being a nation before him for all time. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to let them be for 400 years living in their wickedness. And he was storing up his just wrath toward them for 400 years against these people. And then all to his glory, he would use his own people to deal out their eventual judgment. And this is what happened, by the way. When Israel conquered the promised land after the exodus, they did this. And have you heard of an Amorite today? They don't exist anymore. This is just our second example. But I think the point is already inescapable. God holds the affairs of the nations in his hand. And he just directs them according to his plan. He's already determined their beginning, their end, their years. From creating the nations to setting their course, he holds them all. Now I want us now to, to, to fast forward 400 years to when all these things take place. To that time when God would deliver his people from Egypt. And for our third example, I want to show you God's total sovereignty, which extends even over kings, the most powerful men on earth. So our third example is Pharaoh. You know, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And just turn over with me to Exodus chapter 4, the next book right after Genesis. Exodus chapter 4. So here we are, we're 400 years later. Israel has been enslaved by Egypt. But God's deliverance comes right on schedule. He's going to deliver his people from the mighty hand of Egypt. And back then, Egypt was like a superpower. Humanly speaking, Israel could not escape. They could not free themselves. It was impossible. But God raises up Moses to be his mouthpiece. And God enables Moses to perform great signs and wonders and miracles to show to Pharaoh, proving that he is speaking on account of God. 
For instance, Moses had a staff, and God empowered him such that when he threw the staff to the ground, it would turn into a snake. And when he picked it up by the tail again, it would turn back into a staff. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw, if I saw someone do that, and especially back then, before Scripture was written, that's all you had to go by, I'd probably listen to them. Indeed, Moses proceeded to perform many great miracles before Pharaoh, all so that Pharaoh would know for certain that Moses was speaking on behalf of God, and that he better listen. Better listen to this guy telling you to free the Jews. By God's power, you remember the ten plagues of Egypt. Moses turned the Nile River into blood. He sent a swarm of frogs, a plague of flies, pestilence on the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of all the firstborn in the land. But all these miracles, these are not the most miraculous thing to happen here in early chapters of Exodus. It's not the most miraculous thing. Do you want to know what is even more miraculous than these ten plagues? It's the fact that Pharaoh still doesn't listen. After all of them, he still doesn't listen. Every single time, miracle after miracle, Pharaoh's watching Egypt be destroyed in front of him, but he doesn't give in. He doesn't listen. He doesn't let the Jews go. Now, how could he deny these signs? Was Pharaoh blind or something? Well, he was. He was blind. Not physically. He was spiritually blind. Because behind the scenes, God was hardening his heart. God was on purpose preventing Pharaoh from believing the signs and listening to Moses. You might not believe that. But thankfully, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, this is before the signs take place, by the way. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why would God do this? Why would he do such a thing? This goes back to our question from earlier. Why would God allow bad things to happen? fits in the same category. The answer is the same for why God does all things for his glory. God acts, bringing about the good and the bad, all so that his name would be glorified. God was working even through an unbelieving Pharaoh so that both the Israelites and the Egyptians and us today would know there's only one God, and he is the sovereign Lord. And he alone is to be worshipped. God was putting on purpose his power on display for the world to see. And we're still looking at it. Turn to Exodus chapter 7. It's not the only time it says this, by the way. Over and over it says this to the point where you just can't escape it. You can't try and reinterpret it. It's just too plain to see. Exodus 7. God's not just doing this for the Israelites, by the way. He has all the nations in mind, including Egypt. Look at this, Exodus 7, verse 3. He says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? That I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. God wanted the full ten plagues to be seen. He wanted to 
put his power on display, not just after the first one. He wanted them all to be magnified. Verse 4, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from the midst. He's also doing this for Egypt. They will know. They will know there's just one God. Exodus chapter 10. One more here. A couple pages over. Exodus chapter 10. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for Egypt. It's for the future generations as well. Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have, here it is again, hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And, here's another reason, verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. God was taking the most powerful nation on the planet at the time, Egypt. Today, like us, America, and he was just crumpling them in his hand, saying, you're going to know. There's someone who's really powerful here, and, and it's me. And I want your kids to know it, and their kids, and us today. Indeed, the New Testament confirms this very thing. Paul said in Romans 9.17, he said, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I told you it's not a, a milk teaching. God's deliverance of Israel climaxes in chapter 14. You can read that on your own. We're not going to turn there. Just to sum things up in case you forgot, Pharaoh finally lets the Jews go, just like God planned. Then he has a change of heart and wants to get them back. So he chases after them, just like God planned. But God fights for his people. He, you remember, parts the Red Sea. They pass on dry land. God, one more time, he hardens the heart of Pharaoh and the army so that they follow Israel into the parted Red Sea. Not a good idea, by the way, when you see this like miraculous sea divided. And God, of course, lets the sea swallow them up. Do you doubt God's power? Do you doubt God's sovereignty? When you see nations rise and fall today, when you see calamity strike, even our own nation, are you the type of person who asks, where is God? Are you one of those? And when elections don't turn out your way, when your own country decays morally, perhaps beyond the point of return, do you really think it's because God has lost control. To the contrary, you're simply seeing the plan of God being worked out so that all people, Jews, Egyptians, Americans, might come to know sooner or later, and later they all will, that there's just one God and he rules over all. God created the nations. He made a plan for the nations. He even directs kings and pharaohs. Now I want to give you an example of God's sovereignty to use to bring discipline on his own people. And so our fourth example of God's sovereignty over the nations is, in fact, Israel. Fourth example now is Israel. 
Turn with me to Jeremiah 25. It's right after Isaiah. If you can find Psalms or Proverbs, just find it. Start flipping a few books to the right. You'll get there. Jeremiah 25. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. As you know, God rescued the Jews from Egypt, and he did so to make them his special people. He brought them into the, the promised land, gave them his law, made them his people, all so that they would be as lights shining to all the nations around them, the pagan nations around them. But over time, the Jews strayed from their purpose. They strayed from following the one true God, And in fact, they started to become like the other nations. God warned them about this. Way back in Deuteronomy, before they became a nation, God warned them. He said, you know, you're going to be in the land. And by the way, if you forsake me, if you start living like the pagan nations around you, I will judge you and I will exile you out of this land. And lo and behold, it happened. In that day... God sent prophets to the people. And at first, the prophets were to warn the people. They were to say, repent, change, turn from your wickedness. It's not too late for Israel. But as time went on and as the people ignored the prophets and increased in their wickedness, God gave the prophets a different message. The message became, it's too late. You're done. Judgment's coming. Nothing you can do about it now. And Jeremiah includes the fact that God is going to use the most wicked nation on the planet to judge his own people. God's going to move them like a chess piece to take down his own people. Jeremiah 25. There's countless examples of this, but here's one. Verses 8 through 11. Therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, talking to Israel, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against his land, this land, and against its inhabitants, and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Look at the God behind This prophecy. Look at him here. He just picks up an entire nation and wields them like a sword to do his will. And understand this. Nebuchadnezzar, he was extremely evil and wicked. And so were the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans as they're called. They were known for their vicious conquests. But God calls this man his servant. Not because he's a God follower, but because he is using them to do his will. And forget Egypt. Babylon at this point was the new superpower, the strongest in the land. This prophecy did come true. Read 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36. This is exactly what happened. 
The result was catastrophic. Babylonians came, led by Nebuchadnezzar. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem to siege it because it was a difficult city to conquer. They cut off the food supplies such that the famine was so great in Jerusalem, there were reports of cannibalism. When they eventually broke through the walls and invaded, they slaughtered indiscriminately men, women, children, old, young, didn't matter. They took the king at the time, Zedekiah. They slaughtered his sons in front of his own eyes. Then they plucked out his eyes so that it would be the last thing he ever saw, and they left him alive. Anyone else left alive was taken captive as slaves to Babylon. The sword came down on God's own people that day at the hands of a godless nation. And who was behind it all? God. It was God's plan. Again, you're going to ask, how could God do this? That's what the prophet Habakkuk asked. Go read that on your own. It's three short chapters, not that long. Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived during the same time, at the end of Judah's reign. He knew, he knew that God was good. He knew that God was too pure to approve evil. So he asked God, how can you let the wicked swallow up the righteous? How can you do this to your own people? I know you're good, so how can you do this? God answers him. And he tells him that he is using the Babylonians as an instrument in his hand like a hammer to crush and punish Israel for their own wickedness. You see, Habakkuk was right. God cannot approve of evil. He must judge sin and wickedness. And that's what he was doing to Israel for their wickedness. He was simply judging them for their sins, like everyone will be judged. But do not mistake God's sovereign usage of the nations for his approval of their ways. Indeed, as God says, he will also then turn around and judge the Babylonians for their wickedness. They don't escape his judgment. They are still held accountable for their actions. In fact, Jeremiah says the same thing. You're still in chapter 25. Look at verse 12. Right after he finished telling Israel you would be destroyed by the hands of Babylon, what does he say? Verse 12, Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. What's all this telling you? It's telling you that everything happens for a reason. Every affair of the nation happens for a reason. I mean, think about all the affairs of the nations over the centuries. Think of all the uncertainty we face today because of what's going on amongst the nations. I mean, just this past week, you probably heard, it looks like yet again Israel gearing up for war in the Middle East. Once again. Yet God holds all these affairs in his hands. And he's using the nations to accomplish his greater goal. Yet still holding people accountable for their actions. He held Israel accountable. You can, you can believe the church is not exempt today. and Christians are not exempt from God's sovereign hand as well. Now before we wrap things up here, I want to give you this, this fifth example. It's a good one. It's a big one. It's Nebuchadnezzar himself. The fifth example of God's sovereignty over the nations is Nebuchadnezzar. If you're having trouble spelling that, good luck. But you can find it if you're taking notes in Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Got a little spelling for you there. 
No spell check. But when you get a chance, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Just turn to the right a few books. You'll find it. If you're in Jeremiah, just just slowly turn to the right. You'll get there, Daniel chapter 4 now. Everything God said about Israel came true again. They were conquered. They were exiled for 70 years at the hands of the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And later, the Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Medo-Persians, just like God had predicted 70 years later. But I want to talk about King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Believe it or not, this wicked, evil, pagan king gives us, in Scripture, perhaps the best verses on God's sovereignty over the nations found anywhere. In fact, did you know this? King Nebuchadnezzar, God used him to write a chapter of the Old Testament. How can this be? Well, let's talk about it. Daniel. Let's start with Daniel. He was one of those people taken captive into Babylon. But God raised him up, and by his miraculous sovereignty, Daniel actually found himself as one of the king's personal servants, Nebuchadnezzar. One time the king had a dream. No one could interpret that dream except Daniel. And Daniel wowed the king with his interpretation, such that Nebuchadnezzar even declared, this chapter 2, verse 47, he said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. But Nebuchadnezzar's admiration of Daniel's God was short-lived, not genuine. He proceeded to build a gold statue of himself, and he commanded everyone to worship it. Now, I know, we're skipping over a lot of chapters 2 and 3, good stuff. I want to encourage you to read them on your own. I mean, talk about God's sovereignty over the nations. If you read Daniel 2, the vision God gave the king really outlines the course of all human history, ending with God's everlasting kingdom. It's remarkable. But I really want to point you, though, to this episode in chapter 4. Can't look at everything. See, over and over again, Nebuchadnezzar, he kept exalting himself. He truly was, at the time, the most powerful man on the planet, and he knew it. He knew it. But it came time for God to humble him. So God gave him another dream. This time the dream was of this magnificent tree, filled, bountiful, glorious looking. But in that dream, this tree was cut down. It was reduced, made low, branches chopped off, made to look like nothing. And Daniel, once again, interpreted this dream for the king. And as you can bet, the tree represented Nebuchadnezzar. And he was to be made low until he recognized that God was what? Loving? No. God was good? That God was sovereign. He would be made low until he recognized that God alone was supreme and sovereign, not man. This was all told to King Nebuchadnezzar, and a year later, it came true. And I want us to pick up now on the fulfillment of this dream. Daniel chapter 4, and start reading with me at verse 28. Long section, so hang in there, but verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not 
Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Look at that, all the, the personal pronouns. Verse 30. This is Babylon the Great, which who built it? I built it. It's a residence built by what? My power and the glory of my majesty. He's, he's puffing himself up and declaring his own praise. And you can bet God's going to humble him. In the ver- next verse, that's what happens. Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched from the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I... Nebuchadnezzar, now stop right there. Who's writing this? Now this is a personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar after the fact that has been included by God in Scripture. Verse 34. But at the end of those seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now get this. For... His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants on earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Let's finish it off. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You see, he was made low and God gave him back his Sovereignty, but this time Nebuchadnezzar knew where it came from. And this time his worship was real. I'm convinced you will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. And when you read this, it just makes you say, wow, who is this God? Forget Nebuchadnezzar for a second. Who is this God who can do such a thing? He takes the most wicked man on the planet, uses him to crush his own people, then later turns around and shows him his power again and converts him. Nebuchadnezzar finally realized his own power was nothing. It was just a charade. He had sovereignty only because God gave it to him. God put him in place. God gave him power. And so it is with all rulers. That's the point we learned from Nebuchadnezzar. Every ruler that has ever existed has been put there by God to accomplish his hidden will. Just as easily as God gives power, he takes it away. 
And he is the one who is really sitting on every throne. This has been true for all history, Romans 13. Let's read that. It's true today. Every leader, every president has been put there by God. And so now all that's left for us to do is look at our, our last example, sixth example of God's sovereignty over the nations. And this sixth, sixth example is America. That's right, America. And you're not mistaken. America is not in the Bible. But nonetheless, our own country, it's still a fitting example of God's sovereignty over the nations because every country is an example of God's sovereignty over the nations. That's the whole point I've been making this morning. You don't have to turn to these passages. Just listen along. Job 12:23. God makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Lastly, Acts 17:26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. It doesn't get any more explicit than that. God made every nation, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, Acts 17 and 26. From our nation's history to our present day, to our eventual end, God has appointed our times and our boundaries as well. Just think about this. From everything we've studied today, and that was truly just a small sampling. I'm not making that up. It's crystal clear we, we have a big God. And he reigns over everything and over every nation. And you can't stop him. You can't do anything about it. What does this mean for us? This means that God is sovereign over who becomes president. God is sovereign over every decision the president makes, over every law passed by Congress, over every decision the Supreme Court makes. Even those unjust laws and decisions that end up persecuting God's own people he is still sovereign over. This doesn't excuse wicked men in power, just like Pharaoh wasn't excused, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, they weren't excused. But like I said at the beginning, God is still able to accomplish his will and his plan even when wicked men are in power. All history is marching toward one goal. That goal is God's glory, which can be seen in God's kingdom. Really one and the same. And God is pursuing and establishing that kingdom right now. Although we skipped over in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel speaks of a kingdom that will come after all the other human kingdoms, but it will never end. Daniel 2.44 reads, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. God is working all history toward his kingdom. And that includes the affairs of America. We don't know 
how every decision fits in, how every event fits in. We can't see that. But we know that God is guiding all things toward his perfect end. And that's a good thing. What does this mean for us as Christians? It means that no government exists without God's approval. That's Romans 13.1, right there. Therefore, we should still respect and submit to government, even unjust governments, just like we learned in 1 Peter 2, remember? Unless the government calls us to sin, we are to honor and respect the rulers of the land as if they were divinely appointed, because they are. Every election ends just as God wanted it to end, and we have to respect that. At the same time, we are not to worry over the future or grow anxious because of the tumult we see in the government. God's hand stirs up the nations as he pleases. But for those who love him, there's no safer place to be than in God's hands. Though God may indeed judge our own land someday, we are eternally safe in Christ. And if that's you, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing really to fear. Instead of worrying alongside the cable news shows, instead of staying up late worrying about the future of our country, just do this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's all you have to do. Let tomorrow worry about itself. You just focus on living fruitfully for God. Finally, remember that government's not our hope anyway. Nations rise and fall, and it may be troubling to think about the own downfall of our nation someday. We don't know. But our hope has never been in the affairs of nations to begin with. Government can't save you from your real problem, which is sin. Only Christ can. So you need to hope in Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his gift of eternal life. And if at the end you are found in him, you get to be a part of, by God's grace, his kingdom. So first, have a saving faith in Jesus alone. Then let that faith grow stronger such that you can weather any storm by leaning on him. And since Jesus is our only hope, since the gospel is the only thing that can change people, and lastly, invest more of your time in evangelism. The gospel is the power of God to save. That's the only way our country is going to be changed for the better. Think about this. Even if every person made it into office that you wanted, if we are still a nation of unbelievers, we're doomed. It doesn't matter. So spread the gospel. Pray fervently for others. Pray for the leaders, 2 Timothy 2, or 1 Timothy 2, and then simply rest assured in God. Like I said earlier, his sovereign power is the most reassuring thing to those who love him. Because you know, even when things seem out of control, they're not. Things are never out of control in your own personal life, but today are focused in the affairs of the nations. To the world, God's power is terrifying because they can't escape it. They can't run from it. can't do anything about it. But for those who have found the means of escape, they have turned to Christ in faith and received his salvation. You can be assured that God will ultimately protect you, bring you to his kingdom. So rest assured in that. Look forward to his kingdom in that day and we will be with him forever and trust him here and now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do confess that you and your son Christ are indeed king of kings and 
Lord of Lords. And Christ, when he returns, he will wear that on his robe, letting all people know he is the sovereign over everyone and everything, including every nation. We thank you that you have made us bow the knee now willingly and joyfully. Lord, we don't know what you're doing with all the nations today, including our own. We don't know how they will fit into that end picture, but we know they do. And you are guiding all things toward your glory and your kingdom. We simply rest assured in that. Thank you for your kingdom. We pray as you taught us, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that day. May we busy ourselves now with with doing your will here on earth, trusting you, not worrying as we see the day drawing nearer, but being more joyful and hopeful in all that we have in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.